everyone, and welcome to the Barbell Mamas podcast. My name is Christina Previtt. I'm a pelvic floor physical therapist, researcher in exercise and pregnancy, and a mom of two who has competed in CrossFit, powerlifting, or weightlifting, pregnant, postpartum, or both. In this podcast, we want to talk about the realities of being a mom who loves to exercise. Whether you're a recreational uh, exerciser or an athlete, we want to talk about all of the things that we go through as females going into this motherhood journey. We're going to talk about fertility, pregnancy, and postpartum topics that are relevant to the active individual. While I am a pelvic floor physical therapist, I am not your pelvic floor physical therapist and know that this podcast does not substitute medical advice. All right, come along for this journey with us while we navigate motherhood together, and I can't wait to get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Barbell Mamas podcast. Christina Previtt here, and I am filming this just after Thanksgiving. So if you were in the U.S., you had your Thanksgiving this past weekend, and so I hope you all had a wonderful time connecting with family we did like a Friendsgiving for U.S. Thanksgiving being back in Canada. And definitely one of the things that I think the U.S. does so well is that connection piece being around family. And I know that not everyone has the best family environment. So I hope that you had people that loved you around you this Thanksgiving. A lot of mamas that I saw posting on social media were talking about gastro bugs. So I hope that everybody kept really healthy over the holiday and that, you know, there wasn't too many, too much drama in your, your family um, get togethers for Thanksgiving. Today, I was hoping for us to talk a little bit about my birth story. So this is going to be kind of a personal episode and, and let me know if this is helpful at all. I had two kind of net positive, I would say birth experiences, both that were very different with my daughter four years ago and with my son two years ago. And I think having net positive birth stories can be really helpful. And that doesn't mean incidents or intervention free. The more conversations we can have around birth, the better. I remember when I was pregnant with Maya, my eldest, I felt like everybody wanted to tell me their horror stories. Everybody wanted to tell me all the negatives and how long they were in labor and all of those types of things, which, you know, can be helpful, but they did create all of this fear in me. And so hopefully these are helpful. I want to kind of put in some layers of education around birth prep and methods of birth that I hope you find that helpful as well. And if you have any other questions, please just let me know. So with my daughter, we were in California. The day that we got back from California, I found out that I was pregnant with her. Um, I had competed in nationals for weightlifting in 2018. I was still prepping. I was hoping to make nationals in 2019. We knew that we were going to try to get pregnant, but you never know how long these things are going to take. I was working with a nutrition coach. I was very lean. Um, I'm probably sitting around 67 or 68 kilos 
now it's like 145 pounds and I was sitting at 61 or 134. So I was 10 pounds lighter than I am now. And I'm not super lean, but I'm fairly lean now. So I was doing really well from that perspective, from a leanness perspective, doing well sounds weird, but you know what I mean? And I was getting my period regularly. It was something that we were tracking. Um, and so coming back from California, it was our first month trying. It was one of those things where we got pregnant right away, which is so great. But I was also 10 weeks out from a meet. No, I was six weeks out from a meet because I, I competed at 10 weeks pregnant. And, you know, this was five years ago that I was pregnant and a lot has changed. Some hasn't, but a lot has. And I was in pelvic health. So I knew that exercise was really good during my pregnancy. I knew that I wanted to keep lifting during my pregnancy, but it was funny because as soon as I took that pregnancy test, I started to question everything, even as a clinician that knows and was in the research I had done, you know, a lot of background stuff on this. I've done a lot more since then, but you know, I was in the weeds of the research that then, and I started to question. And I remember I had just found out I was pregnant. It was like literally the first time I was snatching after I found out that I was pregnant with Maya and I made contact with my pelvis and I started to cry immediately. (laughs) Um, And it was because even though I knew that this was something that my body was used to, like I had all those motor patterns super ingrained. I was like contact sports, contact sports are not allowed. And I immediately called up my family doc friend and she's like, well, I don't know, like you're doing it already. I wouldn't be too worried, but like, if you want to ask your OB, I'm not an obstetrician. And thankfully, because we did so much pelvic health, I knew the high risk fetal obstetrician in town. And he's like, baby, so far back in your pelvis, like you are good. As soon as baby starts to pop and you get a bit of a belly, you may feel like You don't want to do that movement anymore, but for right now you are absolutely safe. And I kind of tell that story in the beginning, this has nothing to do with birth, but I tell that story because it was so impactful for me because they gave me an empowerment forward message. And then they allowed me to make my own decision. Them telling me that I was safe gave me so much comfort Um, And so I competed 10 weeks pregnant with Maya. I continued to weightlift all the way up until delivery. But if anyone knows me in person, I'm kind of a high stress, very much involved in a lot of different things. In that time in our life, we owned a physiotherapy gym hybrid. We ran pre-postnatal programs. I took students from the local university there was a lot going on in our life. And I always struggled a little bit with blood pressure with my first pregnancy. I was always kind of borderline. I usually came running like, you know, a chicken with my head cut off coming to these appointments because I was treating full time. I was doing my PhD. I was running a business and I was pregnant. I was also competing and I was lifting. I always ran kind of borderline and, and it became something that during my pregnancy, I was just so stressed about it. So it it kind of fed this loop, right? Where I was so stressed about my blood pressure that I would stress me out sitting there anytime they had to take it. And so I was always kind of on the cusp. And so they were always very mindful of my blood pressure. They were always kind of monitoring it. And as I got through towards the end of my pregnancy, 
I had an issue at work that was really stressing me out. I could feel it, that my blood pressure was starting to, to creep. I was able to keep it under control with walking and nutrition and hydration and all those things. But like, I was always kind of borderline. And I remember as a person who exercised going into my first pregnancy, thinking that I was, you know, doing really well from a health perspective, like the idea of me having to admit that I had gestational hypertension was crushing because I am so healthy. I own a gym. How can I have high blood pressure? Like I really did feel like I was doing all of the right things, except for the stress management piece, which is still a struggle in my life, if I'm being really honest. And I still had like, you know, these feelings of failure. Now it's funny because I know a lot more and I realize that, you know, gestational hypertension, there's a lot of reasons for it. But in first pregnancies, it oftentimes can be an issue with vascular supply to the dementia or dementia, vascular supply to the placenta. My brain is not functioning right now. I actually just found out that Bruce Willis has frontotemporal dementia. I didn't know that, but that's where that came from. Um, funny, there were my brain is kind of doing this magpie thing. But anyways, it's an issue with the placenta. And so there are things that are in our control, but sometimes there are just things that happen in pregnancy that we cannot change. So getting towards the end of my, my pregnancy, I'm still kind of borderline. My OB, she was having a baby. So she went off on that leave. I started seeing somebody else and then they start having the conversation around induction. And, you know, they were like, well, we can push it. We could not, we could, you know, wait a little bit longer, or we can try and, and start your induction at 38 weeks. There was a lot of back and forth for me about this, about the discussion about induction, about feeling like a failure because I didn't go into birth naturally, but also as a business owner, like the idea of having some control over when I go into labor was also kind of nice. There are so many sides to the induction conversation. There are a lot of reasons why people are pro induction. There's reasons why people are con induction, but there's only your circumstances and your conversation with your providers. So for me, I was like, well, you could be waiting and then you're going to pull me with induction anyway. So, you know, if you're worried and you're worried about baby, let's just do it. And so I was scheduled for an induction and this is where I'm probably a bit on the pathological side. You know, we did like a big reno of the gym the day before I was going in for the induction. You know, we should have been dreaming and like planning for baby. And we were like, we got one more day before this baby comes. We need to finish this project up. We were there to like 10 at night at our gym, knowing that we were going to go in for an induction the next day. So do as I say, not as I do. That was probably not my best decision. But anyways, go in for this induction. And so when you're going in to be induced, I am in the Canadian context. So I'm going to kind of preface this. This is how the Canadian context works. And every obstetrician clinic can have their own you know, ways that they're going to go through an induction, but my cervix was shut. Like there, it was, baby was not coming. Maya was not ready. She wasn't coming. And I was tight and closed. If you are going to start the induction, there's kind of two phases to the induction process. One is the ripening and beginning of dilation of the cervix. And then they will use a substance called Pitocin to kick your contractions up and kind of allow for that cervical dilation to go from, you know, one to two centimeters to 10. The original part of the induction, there's two ways for you to start your labor. 
One is to use like a prostaglandin, which is like a gel that they will put in the cervix or they will use a Foley or mechanical, like a Foley catheter to put in, to try and, you know, create some space in the, the cervix to, to kind of kickstart all of those mechanisms to start labor kind of going. They had bias towards a mechanical Foley, um, in my hospital, but when they tried to put it in, um, I, it was just too hard for the resident to get that Foley in. I will never forget that resident trying to put in that Foley catheter. He was absolutely too rough in that, that situation. Um, that would probably be a negative for me where it, it does not feel comfortable for anybody checking your cervix, but I definitely feel like there was a better way anyways. Um, so they ended up opting with the prostaglandin and I was very adamant that I did not want to be sitting in a hospital for two days. Induction could take a long time, especially first pregnancies, especially in a sealed cervix. They told me that if I could walk around for 30 minutes and I was totally fine with the, um, contractions, cause it'll start kicking stuff up, uh, getting stuff going, then I could go home and labor at home for a little while. And so I did that, went home was able to, to labor at home, but the prostaglandin started overstimulating me. And so I was having contractions that were 45, 50 seconds long. They were a minute or two apart, but it didn't feel like anything was happening. It just felt like I was kind of constantly in this kind of contraction. And so we called it 10 and they said, you know, if that's going on, we should probably get her in. And so they brought me to, my husband brought me to the hospital. We always joke because he wanted to finish Game of Thrones. And he's like, can we wait? And I was like, absolutely not. And he was not seriously wanting to stay, but we joke about it now. Get there. And it had overstimulated me so much that I ended up throwing up because it was just too much. So thankfully they took the prostaglandin out. They gave me some morphine, some gravel, just to cool my system down, get the contractions down. And then the prostaglandin had started to ripen my cervix. So they were able to put in a Foley catheter and the morphine had brought my uh, contractions and everything down enough. So sorry, gravel is like, um, oh my gosh, what's it called in the United States? Uh, Dramamine. Yeah. It's like Dramamine. It's, it's the same. It's like an anti-nausea med. Um, I don't know what it's called in, in Europe, if it's using the same terms, but it was an anti-nausea med and they, they cocktail it with morphine in Canada. They kind of put the two things together. That was great because I was able to sleep. And I woke up the next morning, the Foley catheter was still in and I was kind of uh, having contractions, but they were fairly manageable. Um, the idea was the next morning that I was going to meet with the obstetrician who was on call. They were going to start Pitocin, which is the next part of an induction. And then we were going to get things running. The nurse came in and said, you know, she's in a C-section right now. She's just finishing up with somebody and then she'll come in and we'll make a game plan for the rest of today. And I said, sure, fine. I'm doing okay. I'm having contractions, but they're fairly manageable. And like an hour later, oh, they hadn't come in yet. They were going to do everything around lunchtime. It was like nine in the morning, nine 30. Um, I started to feel this overwhelming feeling that I had to push and everything was really moist. And like, you don't know what everything is supposed to feel like down there. And I was like, I don't know, Nick, my husband's name, Nick. I was like, it feels like I have to push. And so I called the nurse and I'm a first time mom and I hadn't started the Pitocin. And she's like, 
I think you're just starting to have your, your labor kick up, like give me 15 or 20 minutes. If it keeps feeling like that, then, you know, we'll call the, call the, the doc over a little bit faster and, and we'll check you. I don't even think I last that long. I lasted 10 minutes. And I was like, no, I, I don't really know. Like this feels more intense than that. And I was four centimeters, but baby was coming. Like I hadn't even started the Pitocin. They start to move me. She checked me. My water had broke. The Foley catheter had fallen out. Like I was like, I was ready to go. And so I remember them trying to get me to stand up, to bring me to the delivery suite. Cause I was kind of in a room and the nurse goes, do you feel like you have to push? And I was like, yes. Like the doctor wasn't even there yet. So I had started pushing doctor wasn't even there. And I went from four centimeters to 10 centimeters in no time. And I remember being in this suite and when I was in trans, I went into transition, like at the kind of in the wheelchair going to the the suite. And I, I started being like, Nick, I need an epidural. Like, I don't know, I can't do this. And looking back on it now, that anxiety, that kick up in anxiety is a very normal feeling being in transition. And so I didn't have time for that. I get into the surgical suite. Like my husband is there. I remember they kept trying to give me a mirror. And I was like, I don't want the mirror. Like, I don't want to look at it. I want to feel what my body is feeling. I don't want to be looking at the mirror. Some people love it. I didn't. Um, it come, The baby's head is comes in and out with the contractions. And a lot of people don't know that. They feel like it's kind of just continuing to go straight, straight, straight. And so the mirror can be great because it can show that you're making progress. But as baby's head, you have the contraction pushes and then comes back a little bit, which it's supposed to, um, it can be really, it can be counterintuitive. Like it can make people feel like they aren't making progress. So it depends on the person. Anyways, I didn't want the mirror. I said, stop giving me the mirror. I wanted to push in sideline. They didn't think I was being that, um, productive with my pushing, but anyways, Maya came out 30 minutes later. I ended up pushing on my back. She had the doc ended up coming and she had the umbilical cord once around her neck, which I probably would have been more worried about it. My husband was a little bit concerned. They brought her shoulders out maybe a little bit more aggressively than they needed to, to slip the umbilical cord over her head really quickly. She was born healthy and happy. I had, well, not really that happy. She was crying, but I had a second degree tear of my perineum that they stitched up and she was born. And so I had an unmedicated from an epidural perspective. I had that morphine earlier on to try and bring my contractions that overstimulation down. Um, but I had an unmedicated induction and I was really happy about that. Cause I was able to get up very shortly after delivery and have a shower. And that was like the best shower of life with all of, you know, I pretty sure I pooped like not hundred percent, but pretty sure. And I, I did really well from a recovery perspective, but that tear definitely made me feel like I had this bulging sensation in my vaginal opening. That was a little bit on the concerning side for me. I wonder looking back, if it was me rolling over those stitches and that scar tissue more than anything else, um, versus having symptoms of prolapse. I absolutely have a prolapse. I've had two vaginal deliveries. However, 
that early recovery symptom was probably more my perineum and stitches and things that were healing. And it's something that I always try and educate my mamas on like that feeling or that sensation may be um, a prolapse, but I try not to diagnose anything related to pelvic organ prolapse in the early postpartum period because everything is still healing. We have no idea what's going to happen, but I was able to get back into exercise relatively quickly. You know that I'm very anti six weeks. I was back in the gym several days later. Um, I wasn't obviously lifting anything heavy or ridiculous. I was doing some core work. I was doing some breathing work. I was starting to do some um, uh, pelvic floor contractions. I did some upper body movement and sitting. And it's just because it made me feel better. We lived 30 minutes outside of the city and I forced Nick to give me uh, a gym in our house, even though we owned a gym. And it was because movement for me was a very important part of my mental health strategy. I almost didn't have kiddos because my mom had really significant postpartum depression. And what we know now is it probably wasn't triggered postpartum, but for me, it was a huge part of my early years in my life. And because of that, I had not had any mental health challenges and it made it that it was a true cost benefit for me about should I have kids in the first place. And so I was very much on the fence. Exercise was a very important pillar of my mental health strategy. You were not taking that away from me, even if it meant that I was giving myself prolapse. I don't even think it would matter for me because the fact that I did not have mental health challenges was enough for me to be moving. Now, I didn't do anything that was going to cause me to have a prolapse except for delivering two babies out of my vagina. But even if, you know, it was one of those those things for me that was a super important part of my management. Now, from the six weeks perspective, when I had this check with my physician, I remember because it wasn't my normal doc, I had literally the mental health thing, I had literally flagged everything on my chart. I said, can you put like 8 million exclamation marks and circles around the fact that my mom has a really extensive mental health history from postpartum. And I am very worried about myself postpartum. And I am not that person that is going to tell you that something is going on. I had to tell them at my six week appointment that they did not do any type of screening questions for my mental health. And that was probably one of my bigger disappointments. And it was because my GP who does screen was on mat leave. And so they had not been routinely screening, but I said to them, I was like, I thankfully am okay and can have this conversation with you. But if I was not okay, you should have known. And I put it on my chart over and over and over again, that I was worried about this. And I was not going to be the person that was going to disclose it on my own because I am that high performer that thinks that I can do everything, including being a mom, even though being a mom is really freaking hard. So that was kind of my, my postpartum experience. And that was a little bit disappointing, but I would think that, oh, I thought if I, when I look back overall, I remember how calm my birthing room was. I, I didn't feel calm, but it was, it was quiet around me. And that was not something that I had thought would be because you see all of these stories and you hear everybody talk about how much noise and how, you know, that was, that was their experience about the loudness. And I just remember the quiet, especially for an induction. I thought that it would be a bit louder and it wasn't. So fast forward, we go into a pandemic. I get back. I've, I competed in powerlifting, weightlifting in between my babies. 
we're in lockdown. I'm about 18 months postpartum. And that's when my brain is like constantly being like, let's have another baby. Let's have another baby. Let's have another baby. Um, we are, we try for another baby. And again, thankfully, um, we were able to conceive in the, our first month of trying with Quinn and very similarly, I was able to exercise throughout my entire pregnancy. Fatigue was definitely higher. That second pregnancy just hits different (laughs) with a toddler at home. Thankfully she was in daycare, but definitely much more tired trying to manage a second pregnancy because you can't just go to work and go home and lie on the couch. You have a toddler that's saying, mommy, mommy, I want you to hang out with me. And that makes your second pregnancy harder. So I would say from the cardio intensity side, I definitely self-selected a bit more moderate, um, because if I went too high intensity, I would just be completely smoked for trying to parent at the end of the day. And I, I needed that energy. So that, that worked for me. I lifted right up until I went in to labor with Quinn. My blood pressure was much better. Um, I realized that I had a lot of white coat hypertension where I was getting nervous being at the doctor's office. And it's because I had had hypertension before they were even more on me this time. And I felt a lot of pressure with that. And I told them that, that I was going to monitor and I would send them in my numbers day and night to show that I was being diligent. And I was, and my numbers were always good during the morning and evenings when I was taking them at home. So I was doing a lot better and I felt better. Like I knew that I was not on the cusp with this subsequent pregnancy, which is really great. Um, and I felt a lot better. I, I did a deadlift workout the day before I went into labor with Quinn. I think I deadlifted 175 for five, uh, which is kind of in that 65% range, 70% range for me and felt really good and went into, uh, labor quote unquote, naturally started having, um, contractions. I've been having prodromal labor with him for a couple of days before between two and four. And I remember saying, geez, this kid's going to have me up in the middle of the night. That's where I'm going to start labor. And he said, jokes on you. I'm going to start at 9 PM so that you don't get to sleep the entire night. Funny story. My in-laws were supposed to grab Maya Um, But they had fallen asleep and they didn't have the ringer on. And so I had to call my parents in Hamilton and they drove through the night. My dad was exhausted. They got a couple of hours of sleep. And then Maya was up and we left for the hospital. COVID was such an interesting time. And, you know, a lot of people like to to blame our medical system, but they were responding with the, the knowledge that they had at the time. And we can agree or disagree, but there was a lot of unknowns that we were trying to react and respond to. So I can't completely, you know, put tons of blame on our system um, that had never gone through something like this before, but our system in Canada, we were in lockdown. Um, You were able to have your spouse in the room with you as long as you were in active labor. So they would not admit anyone until they were four centimeters dilated. I went uh, into the hospital. They checked me. They said, I don't even remember how much I was the first time check the first time they're like, yeah, you're, you're in labor, but I think you're only a centimeter or two dilated. You still got a ways to go. We're going to bring you home. And I said, okay. Like, you know, they kind of kicked down. They're like, do you want anything for pain? I was like, no, I'm doing okay. And they told me to go home. And so that was at probably six or seven in the morning. And when I went home, you know, all the artificial lights tends to kick everything down. I kind of went into this, like, you know, dormant part of my labor. And 
it started to kick up again around noon. So 9 p.m. the night before, probably noon the next day, it started to really kick up. And I was like, I was more in very active labor. I labored at home. Um, Mom, dad, and kiddo were there, which was kind of great. But also I really wanted to kind of, um, I had a hard time wanting to be a mom, but also be laboring. I know some people really like having them in that experience. And Maya was there for a little bit, but um, I kind of wanted this to be a moment with, with Nick and I, and went in and I was three centimeters dilated. Remember from my first pregnancy that I had gone from four centimeters to 10 centimeters in less than 20 minutes and delivered a baby when they didn't think that I would on an induction. Um, and they didn't think that I was actually as far along as I was. I had had the baby at the same, same clinic, but they said you're three centimeters dilated. One of the things that I did not appreciate. So one, they wouldn't let Nick come in. The second thing was that they would not admit me until I was four centimeters. I was very, very adamantly in the second time I went in, in very, very active labor. So by the time we went back in, it was probably dinner time, four or five. Um, I don't really remember, but I was three centimeters dilated. I was in very active labor and they're like, no, like we're not going to admit you. And the nurse jokingly said like, go get ice cream and then freak everybody out that you're in super active labor. Cause my husband came in at that point and said, you know, we're half an hour away. Like by the time we go back, we could be turning around and or delivering this kid in the vehicle, which I don't think that they believe, but anyways, um, it's just funny that they were encouraging me to have another exposure to a bunch of people in a ice cream shop when they were not admitting me to try and limit exposures to COVID. Like, you know, there's so many of those parallels that you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Anyways, thankfully I, I had had nausea with my previous pregnancy I had thrown up. And so I did ask them for that cocktail of gravel and morphine. It had helped me last time. So they gave that to me and my husband thankfully had the, the, the knowledge to say, okay, I'm going to give, get her to a hotel that's close by. And I was high as a kite. I do not really take any pain meds because I'm not in any active pain most days. And, um, yeah, I was trying to touch the, his face and saying things. And I was touching the dashboard and people were looking at me and I was like clearly high on morphine, which like probably doesn't look that great on a very pregnant person. Who's obviously in labor just outside the hospital. And I wanted to go for walks and I was like stopping for really active contractions. My husband's freaking out. So we go to the hotel. He gets me a smoothie because with the active contraction, I didn't really want to eat a ton, but I wanted to eat because it had been a while. He gets some food and it knocks me out for an hour or two. And I wake up, it's like, now it's, so that was dinner time. It's probably like seven or eight. And I wake up and I throw up right away. And for me, that's when I go into transition. It's not a scary thing. It's just like a, this is kind of what's going on for me. And I started to have that, that fetal ejection reflex of like, this baby's coming down. And I said to Nick, I was like, you know, we better get going. And he kind of like starts doing stuff. And I was like, no, no, no. Like we need to go now. We get to the hospital again. And again, this time I had to walk by myself very, very actively in labor. Like I remember having a contraction in the hallway being like, this kid's going to be delivered right here. Like I can just, I can feel it. And, um, they, they admit me or they check me and they're like, you're four centimeters. Like we'll admit you. And I, I said to them, I'm like, that is incorrect. And they're like, excuse me. I was like, that is incorrect. This kid is coming. I can feel that he is coming. 
And I was so thankful. I had two nurses that both had probably like 15 or 20 years experience that were looking at me and they were about to finish their shift. And they're like, this baby's coming. Like They could just tell like from like, they're like, this is the second time mom, like, you know, she's got this look on her face and I'm at the edge of the bed and I immediately have to start pushing. And then they, they check my cervix again. They're like, no, you're six centimeters. And they were going to check me again. And I said, can you please stop checking my cervix? Like you are about to see this kid. And thankfully they stopped because he was about to come out. And this time I did uh, labor inside lying. And I was very adamant about laboring inside lying because I did not want to labor on my back. It just didn't feel good. I liked laboring on my side and I was actively pushing and they're trying to take a fetal trace. They're trying to check my blood pressure and they're trying to COVID swab me because they didn't learn that I won't go from four centimeters to 10. Like I take a while to get to four centimeters, but once I get there, I'm really quick. Anyways, I Quinn was born 20 minutes later and it was such a fascinating experience. Again, in transition, I was like screaming for the epidural, did not have time, ended up unmedicated again. Again, thankful for that because I, I got to move around very quickly. Um, but uh, like an hour after the anesthesiologist came in, I was like, here we want an epidural. Don't even remember it because I was like in baby like bliss. And my husband's like, there's the kid right there. And he's like, oh, see you later. Bye. Um, but you know, it, it was also like a really positive experience. The trouble with COVID was that I really did feel like they were dismissing my experience of labor at times with some of their comments that they were making, trying to be funny. Um, and I was at the labor, I was at the hospital that I labored with my daughter and they knew that I had gone from four to 10 centimeters, but they hadn't admit me, hadn't, hadn't admitted me. So my records weren't there. So if they had probably seen that, they probably wouldn't have gotten me to go to the hotel. And I would have been there for several hours instead of walking when this baby was about to be delivered. The other thing that was interesting is that I don't know if it was where you all were, but during COVID, there was this huge baby boom. And during this baby boom, we had three moms that were delivering, like actively delivering at the same time. And so the OB, honestly, the OB was basically there to catch my kid. Like it was, they, she didn't do anything. She was very standoffish. My husband, it's funny at first was like, I was almost upset at first that she didn't feel like she was doing anything and that it was mostly the nurses. But then afterwards I realized that was probably the best thing. And I thought so too, but she was having a headset in that he hadn't seen at first. And they were talking about how there was meuconium in one delivery and they were going to have to use a vacuum or forceps and get that baby out really quickly. And they were going to prep an OR just in, in case. And Nick thought that it was for Quinn. And that was such a powerful lesson around being very mindful of your communication in a, in a very high stress environment. Like it may not be high stress for a, an uncomplicated delivery room for the, the provider, for the family, we, we know that it can't like things can go wrong. And so you are worried about your significant other. And, you know, it was kind of the curse of knowledge for Nick that he had been in pelvic health around teaching our classes and stuff because he knew what all that stuff meant, but it was super interesting where I, so that was one of the things that was like, kind of not a great thing for me. The second thing was that, um, I had a grade one tear. So I just kind of had some last Rachel, I think they put a stitch or two and I don't, not much. And she said, you know, there's only two stitches. I probably won't even freeze it. And I was like, um, no, please freeze before you're sticking a needle to stitch me up. 
on a very, very, very inflamed piece of tissue. And I thought that was very, um, it was, it was not very thoughtful of the OB to think, well, it's one stitch versus a needle to freeze because they're very different. A needle for freezing your tissue versus putting a stitch through that tissue. And so when I looked back, I had a fairly eventful, but not kind of a delivery COVID made it so that the, the communication and some of the decisions around the, the policies and procedures of the hospital was not something that I would have chose for myself. And, you know, some of the conversations were not exactly what I would have wanted, but I look back on my deliveries as something that were positive. Not everything was the way that I would have wanted it to be. And I think there was a lot of learning that could have happened from my stories, but I, I overall look back on both of my deliveries with an air of positivity. I can see how we have a lot of things that we need to be mindful of in all situations when it comes to birth and how just like a physical therapist who interacts with shoulder pain all the time, it isn't that alarming having shoulder pain, but the person that's experiencing shoulder pain for the first time, it's rocking their world and making it so that they can't sleep. And that disconnect of a therapist, a physical therapist who's dealing with pain or dealing with pelvic issues all the time versus the person who's experiencing it for the first time can create this, this terrible bridge of communication where people are feeling dismissed or gaslit in those environments. And I understand why. And this can happen and it can make individuals make decisions based on things that we're seeing on social media. And there's so much more nuance than that. And so I see both sides of these discussions that are happening around birth. And I hope that me sharing my stories of, you know, that I had overall really positive experiences, but not everything in my story was what I would consider positive, um, is helpful for you all, you know, like everybody's labor and delivery is very different. There are things that if I was to go through pregnancy again, I would want to do differently, but I also think that birth was something that was really, um, it, it ended up being an okay experience for me. And I know that that is not the case for everyone. There's a lot of trauma that can happen in labor and delivery. And I think the more education we know about the way that things happen, the reason why things happen and the potential different outcomes that can occur during labor and delivery and try and mitigate some of the negative by having informed consent and having conversations can make a huge difference on a person's perception. There are a lot of times where individuals feel like decisions are being made for them. They're not in the right state of mind to make decisions or that there was not enough time to work through the emotions of different decisions happening. Or there were other ways that things could have been done, interventions could have been done that could have made for a more positive experience. And as a healthcare system, I think we need to work on that. But I think that there is a lot to be said for, for telling birth stories and connecting on birth stories. I am definitely one of those. And I, and I've had two unmedicated non-epidural births now where 
I wanted to feel everything going through my body. Like the ring of fire is no joke. If you've had an unmedicated vaginal birth, it feels like a, a Indian rubber burn on your vagina when baby's head is coming through. But I also knew that when that ring of fire was happening, it meant that baby was so close to being there. And it allows you to work through some of those things. So having birth prep sessions, connecting with people who you are asking for their birth story, I think is helpful. Giving a birth story for somebody who does not want it to share your horror stories, I don't think is helpful, but connecting with individuals who had a birth story you wanted, or maybe had the desires you wanted and it didn't end up that way, I think can be something that can help with preparation. All right. I hope you found those helpful. It's been a long time since I've shared those stories on any sort of public platform. If you have any other questions, please let me know. Otherwise, I can hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I cannot wait to connect with you next week and talk to you all 